We're continuing today our series on Luke's Gospel. Uh, Jonathan started it before Christmas, and uh, you can see how clever this is. Uh, last time we had Mary's song when Jonathan spoke on this, and then you've got Christmas that covers the beginning of Luke too, so that's, that's nicely done. And we're picking up the story uh, when Jesus is presented in the temple. Now, interestingly, I spoke just before Christmas, which wasn't in the Luke series, come to think of it. Yet, it's funny, as you'll notice today, a lot of the things, if you were there that week from today, are very similar to that sermon. So it's not that I was uh, skimping on my prep and just wanted to copy it. It could maybe be that God's speaking to us, because, again, the Holy Spirit uh, looms large, if that doesn't sound too sinister, in today's uh, passage. So Luke chapter 2. Jesus has been born, and this is what happens next. Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel even before he was conceived. Then it was time for their purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, as the Lord required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace, as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, The child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, but he will be a joy to many others. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshipping God with fasting and praying. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. When Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law of the Lord, they returned home to Nazareth in Galilee. There the child grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom and God's favour was on him. Now, as a child, my introduction into Christianity had an element of coercion to it. Now, I guess as a child in any sense... Everything you do has an element of coercion to it because you can't really make your own decisions. You do what your parents do. But I grew up in a family where my mum and dad went to church and that's what we did. And so that's just what happened in our family. And I enjoyed church, but quite soon I got the, got the feeling that even maybe if I had something else I'd prefer to do, that was not an option on a Sunday morning. So uh, points of major kind of, if I was on the psychiatrist couch, these would be the things that were coming out. Do it all to all of you instead. Uh, no football on a Sunday morning. Football clubs always play on Sunday. Ah, I'd be playing for Everton now, but anyway... Uh, Um, uh, (laughs) maybe Um, uh, I couldn't go to uh, friends parties on a Sunday morning because actually church to a degree was something I had to do there was a degree of of duty about it my parents saying you're coming I could I remember once bringing up is it possible I could know you're coming to church that was how it was now at the same time if you'd asked me why are you at church and as a young boy in a sense I would have said well I have to be here 
quite soon after, I realized as well that attending church meetings was not just keeping my parents happy or fulfilling a religious duty. That Actually, when I came to be and worship and hear the word with the people of God, it was a place where I could meet God as well. I was greatly uh, blessed to grow up in a church uh, It was a really good church. And I remember times even now as a young, very young child where I met with God. I remember being healed dramatically in a meeting when I met with God. I remember times where, in, uh, where maybe someone preaching or maybe in times of worship where God spoke to me words that I can still remember today that have shaped my life because I came to church, maybe because I had to, and I met with God. Now, I learned something growing up then and it's something that I guess for many of us would be a very familiar thing that Christianity is not simply something we have to do but within Christianity there is an expectation of a dynamic meeting with God himself now in this passage we see a very very similar thing happening to Mary and Joseph You see, they go to Jerusalem here out of the law. They go out of custom. They go really because they had to. And what happens? Well, they bump smack bang into the Holy Spirit. You see, uh, at at the beginning of Luke's gospel, what's happening? And you've seen this the last few weeks. It's easy for us as we know the whole story. We know how it finishes. and We know the Jesus of the story to forget this. But what Luke's doing is he's unveiling Jesus a step at a time. Like for the reason, like who is this Jesus? And we've had a few bits already. We had angels in the realms of glory. Uh, casting my mind back a couple of weeks. Those carols. No more of them for another year. Some of you will probably think that's a great thing. But anyway, um, the angels from the realms of glory are shouting things like that Jesus will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. Uh, they said he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. A saviour has been born to you. All these things, mysterious things. What does it mean? Well, then in this passage here, it's as if Luke is doing something slightly different. And he's giving us a little hint in the story of what kind of life Jesus is going to bring. Jesus seems very passive in this story. He's a little baby being brought to a temple. But in this story, I think we see a kind of foretaste of the kind of Christianity that this child is going to bring. It's not actually going to be a system of law, but it's going to be a life of God's power and his presence. And as we look at Mary and Joseph's experience, I think God wants to bring us back to basics today. And this will be a message I hope that will be relevant any time of the year, but right at the beginning of a year. I think God wants to ask us a question, a really simple question. Why, if you're a Christian here today, why do you do all this Christian stuff? Do you do it because you've always done it? Or because... It's how you, how you impress God, or it's your duty. Or actually, are you doing it, living out with the real expectation of God's power and his presence? That's a good thing to focus on as the year starts. So let's look at the passage and let's see uh, where we get all that stuff from uh, and where it is. So basically, what is going on? Je- Joseph and Mary come to Jerusalem. And you ask them, well, why did you come? And the answer, in one sense, I suppose, is... Uh, They came because of the law. That's why they came uh, to Jerusalem. And Luke's at pains to point this out. I'm going to read you again, verses 22 to 24. And here's your bit. We need to be involved here. A bit of counting. How many times is the law mentioned explicitly in these three verses? It says this. Then it was time for their purification offering, as required by the law of Moses, after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. How many times do we get the law? 
three. We've got three mentions in three verses of the law. Luke is at pains to point this out. They came to Jerusalem because they wanted to fulfill the law. Now, according to Jewish law, a woman after she'd given birth would have to uh, give a purification offering, uh, a ritual for purification. Basically, Jews were not overly keen on blood and not wanting to kind of freak you out uh, or anything, but birth involves lots of blood. So basically, when birth happens, uh, there's a purification offering that is required, and usually it's like a sheep and a dove. Here, if you're poorer, you can give two pigeons. Pigeons would be a rubbish offering, wouldn't it? If I was God, I wouldn't have a pigeon, but you know, God has his own, own way. <laughs> They were better pigeons than you get in Birmingham City Centre, I imagine. <laughs> but anyway, um, and so they did this purification offering, but wanting to kill two birds with one stone, I'm not talking about pigeons now, they also um, needed to do another thing, which was for a firstborn son, there was also a ritual to go through and a presentation, uh, the idea being you give your son to God and then you buy him back for five shekels. And that's what uh, the Jews did in that day. That was laid down in the law of Moses. And the idea was to do it in Jerusalem. And Bethlehem was right by Jerusalem. So there we go. That's where they did it. I'm going to be really clear on this. I'm going to say this a number of times today. uh, Because I want you to get what I'm not saying here. What Mary and Joseph did was a really good thing. They did a good thing. They were being obedient to God's will as revealed in Moses' law. That's a good thing. And part of the reason Luke is so keen to point this out is because he wants to make it very, very clear from the off that Jesus did everything to fulfill the law. He was completely righteous. This is a kind of thing to keep in your mind as we go through Luke. That is going to be very important as we go through. However, what's odd, though, is as they obediently and dutifully follow the law, they get something very different. You see, however obedient they were being, if you'd asked Mary and Joseph on their way to the temple, Mary and Joseph, what do you expect to happen when you go through these rituals? They probably would have looked slightly nonplussed by that question. Well, what, do you, what do you mean expect to happen? We, we do. This is what we have to do. This is a good thing to do. We're obeying God. There would have been no sort of sense of, of, of expectation and anticipation in itself. However, something does happen. Well, they're there. Let's look at what happens. They come for the law and they get the spirit. That's what happens here. What happens? They meet this guy, Simeon. Now, Simeon is clearly a really good bloke. That seems to be what it's saying in this passage. He's called righteous. He's called devout. He's obviously a man of faith. He's being obedient to God. All of that stuff is there. Yet, the thing that marks him out most is one thing. And it's not a thing. It's a person. It's the Holy Spirit. You can have a, have a little look. It says, the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, in the New Living Translation, which I've read from, it kind of clumps the next verse in with that verse. But it says it, it, in the actual um, Greek for this, again, it mentions the Holy Spirit again. The next verse says, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he'd meet the Messiah before he died. And then once more, uh, he was moved by the Holy Spirit to go into the temple courts. They came for law, law, law. What they got was spirit, spirit, spirit. You've had, four, you've had a chapter and a half of Luke so far, and you've got such luminaries as Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and Zechariah, and even John the Baptist and Jesus. And there are four explicit mentions of the Spirit so far in Luke in a chapter and a half. Simeon comes, and he's got the Spirit all over him. There's, there's no one in the Bible, as far as I'm aware, who has such a Spirit-soaked introduction as Simeon. So you go down to verses 27 and 28, and... Uh, You can see what it means when it says this. This isn't just a throwaway verse. It says, When Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. 
What's happening? Well, they came for the requirements of the law. What did they get? They got the Spirit. And so you've got overflowing praise, spontaneous praise. The Spirit brings that. You've got bl- a blessing to them in verse 34. But the, the main way Simeon brings the Spirit is through prophecy. He hears from God. He tells them what God's uh, thinking. He, he identifies the child. There's discernment there. And he even speaks into Mary's situation uh, with a painful word, but he gives her God's word. And they meet with God. They hear his word. And as they leave the temple, what's their response? What's the feeling that they have? Well, when you just fulfill the law, the response, I don't know about you, but it would be this. It's either a kind of smug sense of another, another box ticked, I am the man. Or probably not if you're a lady, but anyway. Um, or it could be more of a feeling of, phew, got another one ticked off. Not going to have the lightning bolt on me today. That's the kind of feeling that you get when you fulfill the law. Is that the feeling they had? No, not in the slightest. It says this in verse, uh, I think it's verse 33. Jesus' parents were amazed. They were amazed. I think here we get a wonderful picture of what Christianity is. Jesus' parents are getting just a hint of what their son is all about. His, this, this boy they're taking, his salvation is not going to be one of a new book of rules or a new set of traditions, but he's going to find a way to bring God's presence to his people in a very new and real and exciting and even amazing way. Christianity is not something we do because we have to do it. It's something we do to meet with God. Now, I wonder how you respond to that. For some people here, that might come to you as a little bit of a surprise. You might not call yourself a Christian this morning and you're kind of like you're sort of looking in at something that, that you're interested in or you've come to examine or you've seen in your friends' lives. And what you expect to see is, is a community of people or people who kind of follow religious rules, who are very serious about those rules, very earnest in that sense. There's a, a lot about human effort and duty. Maybe you expect to see a judgmental attitude as you see that because we're doing all this. Look at those people out there. Maybe you feel almost Christians are saying that about you. Well, that's not what we're about at all. I hope you've spotted that from your friends or from being with us uh, this morning, even so far. We're about one thing. We're about a number of things, but this one thing's massive. We're about God's presence. That's what we're about. We want God with us. God's made a way for us to be in renewed friendship with him by his son. And now we look for his presence through his spirit. So to, to kind of de-jargonize that that means you want to hear his voice it means we pray that God would really make a difference in everyday situations in our lives and we'd expect him to do that we look to experience him because that's who we are if you've maybe never been to a service at this church or maybe any church Christian service I want to be clear with you my aim would not be that you leave today with some sort of sense of serenity from being within a worshiping community or maybe a time of reflection away from the hubbub of the world. That wouldn't be my, my main goal for you as you leave today. My main goal and my hope for you would be you'd leave like Mary and Joseph, amazed because you've met with God. That's what we expect. I'd really encourage you to come to worship in a, a, a few minutes' time and uh, just to come and think, well, I don't even know if God's there. Ask him, God, if you're there, come, come to me. We expect God to be with us, not metaphorically with us, not visibly with us either, but literally with us through his spirit. For others of you, I guess, this stuff's not such a surprise. You're like, yep, 
been here before, I know this stuff. It's familiar to you. We don't do Christianity because we have to. It's about meeting God. Yeah, I know that sort of stuff. <clears throat> but I'd argue that if that's something even that we know in our heads, so often in our expectations and experience, we can so easily miss this and fall back into Joseph and Mary's experience. So if someone was to interrupt any of your rituals, your prayer life, or reading the Bible, or coming to church, or even signing up for a life group in a week or so, and they say, why? Why are you doing this? If you've been honest, would it be, well, actually, it's a custom. It's what I've always done. Or, well, it's the right thing to do, isn't it? It's a good thing to do, go to, go to church and pray and that sort of thing. Look, I want to say it again. I want to make this really clear. Those stuff are not bad things. And Mary and Joseph aren't doing anything wrong here. In fact, you've got to notice, if they weren't obedient to the law, they never would have bumped into the Spirit because they wouldn't have been in the temple in the first place. But for these guys, custom and duty would have been largely all this was. And you can't blame them for that. They knew no different. Their meeting with Simeon really was a foretaste of something new God was doing. At the time, their expectation levels were very low because they'd not seen anything like that. God was opening their eyes and everyone's eyes to this at that time. They had, they had an excuse. We don't have that excuse. For many of us, we would have had significant meetings with God in our lives. Let's think back to your Christian experience. If you've been a Christian any time, I imagine for many of us, when we became a Christian, we met with God. We had these, these experiences, wow, that happened to me. Or maybe soon after. Maybe when you were young, those of you who have been a Christian for a, a long time, uh, they made you do, those meetings with God made you do radical things, made you do crazy things. Gave you a passion and a purpose and a boldness. But then over time, they become a little fewer and far between those experiences. And actually, you realize that you can seem to get by as a Christian without those sort of things. So rather than sort of chasing after those things and God's presence, we settle for the custom, the routine, the tradition. And we go to church, and we pray, we might read our Bible a bit, might not sin too much, or just not too blatantly anyway. But we have no expectation anymore of the living presence of God that work within our Christianity. We don't expect God to amaze us. If that's in any way your experience, I think God wants to remind you say, what being a follower of Jesus is about. Not a peripheral thing at its heart, because it's about his power, and it's about his presence. It's not about going through the motions. Paul, in the book of Romans, it could be a commentary on this passage, to be honest, says this in Romans 7, verse 6. He says, we serve in the new way of the Spirit not in the old way of the written code or the old way of the law. So I want to just look now at what those two ways are. Let's look a little bit more. What's the old way of the written code, the old way of the law we don't follow in? What's the new way of the written code, that we, uh, the new way of the spirit we do follow in, uh, with the way we serve in now? Well, at first, the old way of the written code, kind of, I suppose, modeled in this passage as Joseph and Mary come to fulfill the requirements of the law. Well, the thing that, is mentioned when, when the law is spoken in a way that seems negative in the New Testament. It's not talking about obedience. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Obedience is still very, very, very important. No, it's about the old way of the written codes, about seeing the law as the way to get saved, 
as the way to get right with God. It's focusing on law keeping and doing all these religious things to impress God and win his favor so that he'll be impressed with us in some way. And by, by the time of Jesus, many Jewish people had got themselves into this way of thinking. Now, I'm sure Mary and Joseph had more in them than this and could see what was going on behind the scenes. But in a sense, in Luke 2, they model this approach, the approach of the law. Let's make sure all the rituals are done, all the boxes are ticked. This is about keeping the rules. Now, there is nothing wrong with obedience. But if your moral performance and your religious observance, and some of us think, really, I don't do religious observance. Yeah, we do. We, go, we do religious things. We go to church. We go to meetings. We pray. Those are religious things. If those things become the basis of our relationship with God, well, there's a problem. Because actually, the old way of the written code is very insufficient. Now, it's not just that it's boring, because it is boring. Okay? It's, it's not the most dynamic thing, like, do this, do this, do this. That's not just the problem. The problem is it doesn't work. And it doesn't work because it exposes an attitude in us. And the attitude law-keeping as a way to, for salvation exposes is that I can do this on my own. That's the attitude it exposes. It says, look, I can save myself by following these rules. Yeah, the rules might be tough, it might be difficult, but actually the, the onus is on me. I can do this. I can please God. I can make up for my sins. All I need to do is be very careful, make sure I do these things, not do these things, and God is going to be very happy with me. I think living in the old way of the written code, if you want a, a picture, is a little bit like being sent off on a very difficult journey, uh, but maybe given a couple of resources, to help, like a map and a walking stick, possibly. But essentially, you're on your own. And the old way of the written code says, you're on your own, and you can do it. Yeah, thanks God for my map. Thanks for my walking stick. See you later. You watch how I do on this journey. I'm going to make it. We can't do it on our own. We just can't do it. It's the whole message of Christianity. We can't do it. We didn't, couldn't do it in the past. We need forgiveness. We can't do it in the future. We need his spirit. We, we, uh, this method does not work. But the good news is we don't have to serve this way anymore. There's a new way to serve. We can serve in the new way of the spirit. Mary and Joseph, come for the law. But they meet the Spirit. It's a foretaste of what Christianity will be about. Now, as an aside at this point, uh, for some of you, uh, you might have seen this contrast before, but seen it slightly differently and and thinking, yeah, I know we're not under law. That's a a phrase you might be familiar with. But the opposite of that, the contrast is we're under grace. It's different. Under law, living in the old way of the written code would be trying to impress God through rule keeping. Being under grace would mean that, well, Jesus has forgiven us through his death on the cross. It's not about us impressing God now. It's about us enjoying his grace. We're under his undeserved favor. Now, that contrasts in the New Testament. It is not under the law, but under grace. However, a more normal contrast is the one that Paul makes in Romans 7, verse 6. We're not under law. We're in the Spirit. And I don't think we dwell on this enough because, you see, there is a danger if we focus too much on we're not under law but under grace and forget this dynamic because what we can do is this. We can say, right, Jesus died to bring me back in friendship with God and therefore now I get to enjoy friendship. Thank you, Jesus. It's absolutely great. But if there's no presence of God involved, our friendship with God at best is like pen pals, who live thousands of miles away and never really expect to meet each other. 
Because, yeah, you can talk how you want. We're friends. God's accepted me. But if God's far, far, far away still, well, what's that friendship? It amounts sometimes to no friendship at all. Now, that's not how it's meant to be. Yes, we are under grace. Yes, Jesus has taken our sin. He's meant we can approach God, but it's not then like we're shouting into the void still, I think you're my friend. He rushes in and brings us his presence. Now, God's presence is always associated in the Scripture with his Spirit. And that's the case in the Old Testament as well as the New. But it's got to be said, as we look at the Old Testament, his Spirit his spirit's activity is limited. So as a very, very brief comment, uh, in the Old Testament, if you look for references to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit comes on specific people at specific times for specific jobs. So you've got Gideon, for example. Gideon is going about his daily affairs. The Spirit comes on him to defeat the Midianites, to save God's people. You've got other people who the Spirit would come on, like Saul, and then a few chapters later, the Spirit left him. The Spirit comes on specific people for specific times for specific jobs. But a new day in the Old Testament, as the Old Testament goes on, is prophesied. In Joel chapter 2, Joel says, yeah, you've seen all this stuff going on here, and the Spirit doing these things individually on people's lives, but, I quote from Joel 2, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. I spoke on this in the summer and spent much, much more time looking at the Spirit in the Old Testament, seeing what sense of anticipation this would have brought people. This was exciting. Got a Jewish believer, maybe just before the birth of Jesus, looking back at all their heroes of the faith, and they look and see what's the thing that's going on here, and they see the Spirit coming on them. And they think, oh, wouldn't it be great to have something like that if I had the Spirit? And then they read Joel and say, the Spirit will be poured on all people? This is exciting. This is the kind of thing that would make them think, wow, if only could this be true. Well, it is true. It's exactly what happened. Jesus came. He dealt with our sin. He restored our friendship between us and our Father. And then when he returned to heaven, God sent his Spirit so that that friendship wouldn't be like pen pals. But the the, the friendship would be a close friendship. God's presence with us. We can hear his voice, we can know his guidance, we can feel his power, we can know his strength, we can speak to him and know he's listening to us. We get to serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. That's what being a Christian is. If the way of the law is imagining that the only power available to you comes from yourself, it's your moral strength and your character and all that sort of thing, Well, the the way of the Spirit is the opposite of that. It admits that there is a power that we need external to us that we're reliant on, and it's the power of God that's available through His Spirit. It's not just that God was needed to save me. God is needed every single day and every single second of every minute of every hour of every day. So in this sense, Mary and Joseph came to Jerusalem serving in this first way, and they get a taste of what it means to serve in the second. They came to fulfill a religious duty. They left having met with God. So just as I start to round things up, let's make this practical then. If we live in the new day of the Spirit, if we serve in the way of the Spirit, what can we expect then in our Christian lives? And this is by no means an exhaustive list uh, that I've got here. uh, There's one point from the passage particularly, there's some some others from different places as well. Um, 
But hopefully it'll whet your appetite, because I want you to be excited by this. This is the thing, I think last year, what God spoke to me on most, he keeps bringing me back. It's the Spirit, it's the Spirit, it's the Spirit. What can we expect then from the Spirit? Firstly this, and we see it in this passage, we get to hear God's voice. And this is what Simeon models, and, and Anna, after, I've not mentioned Anna much, I focus on Simeon, but Anna follows in a very similar vein, because she's a prophet, and she hears God, and she works in the Spirit in that way. Now, I think for many people can think that hearing God's voice is a peripheral, sideline sort of thing in Christianity. It's for those kind of prophetic people, you know. But that's not the case. We've been brought into a relationship with God. Imagine if you were adopted by a, a, a rich lord. I'm going back to a kind of medieval sort of situation here. Uh, a rich lord adopts you and he spends everything, he gives everything he's got to have you in his family, to get you living in his house. And on the day the adoption papers come through, you sit in his living room by the roaring fire, him on his chair, and he's done all this for you. And you think, wow. And you say to him, tell me about yourself. Just imagine he just folds his arms, looked at you, read the paper. I mean, it'd be ridiculous. It would be, an, it'd be a ridiculous situation. If he's going to go through all of that for you, why would he not talk? If there's relationship, there must be communication. You know, there's lots of big words for describing God and what he's like in the Bible. And this word is not in the Bible technically, but I'd probably fight my corner for this being theologically sound. One thing about God is he is a chatty God. You know, he's chatty. Have you seen that in the Bible? He makes the world. What does he do? Let there be like He talks and the world comes around. He gives, he gives the law to Moses, spends days with Moses on the top of a mountain. It's so long they think he's dead. Prophets, they're not doing my law. What am I going to do? I'm going to speak through the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Then what happens? I want to save the world. What do I do? He, he sends his word. He speaks. He's a chatty, communicative, talkative God. I, I want to be clear with all of you. God wants to speak to you. I think, well, I'm not hearing him. He's being quiet. No, no, he wants to speak to you. The question is, are you listening? Will you live your life to enable you to hear his voice? Will you put aside time for him, to listen to him? Remember the story of Mary and Martha, where Martha's running around everywhere trying to get stuff done. I'm really busy, I'm really busy. And she's, Mary's just sitting there listening to Jesus. Jesus says, Martha, you're getting too busy. This, she's doing everything that she needs to do. The one thing, she's there. Mary put aside time. There's lots of important things. Are you putting aside time to hear from God? What's your relationship with the Word like at the moment? I think some people think, in the Spirit, hey, the Bible bored me anyway. Let's get that out. God, speak to me. I meet people like that. It's insane. The main way God speaks is through His Word, and it still is. The Spirit inspires the Word. We need to know the Word. God speaks through His Word. And if you consider yourself prophetic in any way, there is almost more of a responsibility on you to know the word. as an anchor, or you'll just start eating cheese and come up with crazy ideas and thinking it was God. That's what will happen. Or, I don't know, not sleeping properly. So, does cheese do that to you? Is that just me? Okay. Anyway, you know. Um, we need to hear from God. It's important. And that's what the Spirit does. First one. Second one is this. God's power over sin in our lives. That's what the Spirit brings. God's power over sin in our lives. One of the Spirit's key roles is helping us to obey God. I've hinted on this already, but as I contrast the law and the spirit, I think it's vital I make this point. It is not that obedience is now no longer important. 
Great. God looks, he, sees, he gives the law, and those Jews, they didn't do a great job. So they're like, oh, obedience, that's not the way ahead. I'll do what you want, just have my spirit. That's not what it's like for us as Christians. Jesus makes this point. Matthew chapter 5, 17 to 20. Incredible words, really. Don't misunderstand why I have come, he says. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Going to verse 20. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The problem with serving in the way of the law is not that it treats the law as too important, but actually it devalues obedience to God. Because what it says is this, yeah, okay, I've broken God's, or I've been disobedient, but all I need to do to make up for that is do a few more rituals and be a bit more careful in the future. What it's saying is, well, my disobedience didn't really matter. No, it devalues obedience. It assumes our breakages of the law can be cancelled by our good works. And actually, what it ends up doing is reducing obedience to external, keeping up appearances, righteousness. I ask you, it's a painful question. Is your righteousness just an external thing where all sorts is going on in your heart and mind, but you're just about keeping it together and everyone thinks you're doing okay? It's likely that you're living, trying to impress God through the law, going through the motions. Because actually, God's interested in our heart and he sees what's going on inside. The whole law, Jesus said, could be summed up in two things. And they're both heart. Love God and love your neighbor. Serving in the way of the Lord is actually a massive cover-up to try to hide the fact that you are not doing either properly and that you can't do either properly. Listen, God has not now lowered his standards for Christians and so moved us from the old way of the Lord to the new way of the Spirit. No, he's given us the Spirit so that we can fulfill the requirements of the law, so that we can really love The Old Testament law has specifics that were God's will for those people at that time. God was speaking. He didn't get it wrong, but we've moved on to a new time. He didn't expect us to always be putting bits of grain together in this way and uh, putting the right types of clothes on like this. That wasn't the plan. That was for them. But God's will still counts for us. What's his will? Love God. Love your neighbor. And yes, he builds on those in different ways, And he speaks to us individually in different ways. And obedience is still vitally important. But we're not to do it on our own. He sends his spirit to help us. You see, the Christian life is not like being sent on a difficult journey with a map and a walking stick. The Christian life is being like being sent on a difficult journey with God. That's what it is. Because with the map, you have to rely on your map reading skills. And with the walkies, eventually you need some strength in your legs. But with God, he says, no, no, we're going this way now. And he says, look, do you need a hand now? Can I carry you now? I don't know if any of you have been back in Middle Earth over Christmas. Put your hands up if you've been back over Middle Earth. Yes, I knew it. Those of you who don't know what the Hobbit is, you'll probably think we're all crazy. Anyway, um, I watched the whole lot of them again. I loved it. Um, but you've got the bit with Frodo and Sam, haven't you? And, and Frodo sort of abandons Sam and he kind of goes, you know, off you go because Gollum messes his head. I'm not going to get too much into it. But you've got the bit at the end, haven't you, where 
Frodo needs Sam to complete that mission. He carries him. You know what? God carries us. We need him at our side. We can't just do with a few trinkets that he, he we can, oh, I love that, I love that, but you, CLA, I can do this. No, we need him. And that's what we get through the Spirit. In your battles against sin, God is with you. His power is in you. Paul writes in Romans 8, he says, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Please, take obedience seriously. Take sin seriously. But don't try to defeat it through your willpower or grit alone. Now, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, recognize your need for the Spirit. Listen to the prompting of the Spirit in your life to avoid temptation. If you're watching a movie and the Spirit just gives you that urge and goes, it's got to go off. It doesn't honor me. Turn it off. If he leads you to your iTunes library and says, right, it's time for a purge, that is not right. God's done that to me this week. It's got to go. Listen to the Spirit. We listen to the prompting of the Spirit. If if the Spirit urges you and says, alarm clock, half an hour earlier, I want more time with you. I want to fill you with my Spirit. Do it. Follow the Spirit. If by the Spirit we put to death the misdeeds of the body, we'll live. Final point. Uh, God's miraculous power. When we're in the new day of the Spirit, we expect God's miraculous power. Serving in the new way of the Spirit, we expect to see regular physical healings. We expect to see regular physical healings. Luke, later on, in the sequel to, to his gospel in Acts, writes this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. It's a challenge for us as a church. If you're new to us here, we're not going to be saying we've got this. We don't see regular physical healings. Probably last year has been one of our leanest periods for physical healing in our history as a church, actually. It's been some healings. It's good. But we don't see regular physical healings. Why do we expect physical healings? This is why we expect it. Because God's here. God's here. It's his presence. It's simple. It's, we don't, there, there is a theology behind this. If you want to talk to me about it, we can talk about it. But, but God's with us. God's our healer. You know what? Serving in the old way of the written code means you just turn up because that's what you always did. It means when you pray for someone, you pray to fulfill a religious obligation, but there is no expectation of anything to happen. Serving in the new way of the Spirit means coming to God, knowing he's here, literally. I'm not talking in metaphor here, literally through his Spirit. And when we gather together then, we expect to see his power. And when we pray, we expect to see our prayers answered. Now, let's be honest. Sometimes we don't. We pray and nothing happens. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes we meet together to worship and you're trying really hard. But it just seems like, God, are you here today? And the worship leader, I hope this is going to happen later, is strumming away really hard, but it's not really getting anywhere. You know that feeling. Where is he? <laughs> the worship leaders will know that feeling sometimes. It happens. and we, we can't say we know why. But you know what? We don't give up because God's here. We push through on these things. For Mary and Joseph, they didn't have the expectation when they came because it was a new thing. For us, it's important we come expectant of the Spirit. We come to meetings where we pray. I want to ask you, in 2013, will we set the bar at turning up to meetings and clocking up time praying? It's the old way of the written code. Or will we pray worship and gather together expectant of the creator of the universe to be here through his spirit and leave us how are they left mary and joseph verse 33 they were amazed 
When was the last time God amazed you? The question. As you look at this year, do you expect God to amaze you this year? Right, can we stand?